from Brooklyn, New York, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Chabal. And this is the Fine Pair Podcast. And uh, Zach, I mean, it's, wait, next week is April. This is nuts. Yeah, I know. Uh, it is a, it is felt, uh, I mean, we've been doing this for a while and, and the dilation of time thing during the pandemic <laughs> has been has been real. But uh, but it's it's definitely, you know, part of it is like in we with this thing, and I'm sure it's true for you in New York as well, where, you know, you go quickly from like, it's dark all the time to suddenly like it's getting lighter and lighter. And then we go to daylight savings time and they're like, oh my God, it's light till 730. And that is a big weird shift. So it's definitely like thrown me off a little bit. Uh, the Seattle weather is cooperating, keeping it feeling like winter. So that's always nice. But you know, we're we're doing good here. How are you? Dude, I'm okay. Uh, you know, just ready for some some nice out like outdoor warm weather mm-hmm. hangs and uh you know, excited for, you know, more people including myself to, you know, get get a shot and 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 move forward. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a it's a it's it seems like such an interesting time because we're all sort of thinking about like what's next, but there's still so much happening now and um yeah, and I'm really excited to start making margaritas again. <laughs> I can't believe you stopped. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I did. I think I, I over, I, I over consumed them, uh, uh, you know, in like the summer and fall of last year and so I took a break and now I'm like, I'm getting back into, I'm like, let's do this. Yeah, <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. I haven't, I haven't quite hit my like spring summer cocktail groove yet. Still drinking like Manhattans, but, um, but man, that first like semi nice day, uh, I will be all about it. But I wanted to ask you, cause I usually start, what, what have you, besides not margaritas apparently, what have you been drinking lately? Ooh. What have I been drinking? Um, so I actually have been drinking some margaritas, obviously, as you, but you said besides that. Gosh. So last night uh, I had just like, you know, a, a really very good beer actually that oh. I, um, that now I'm forgetting the name of, but it's, it's brewed by Bells and it was like a session, they're like version of like a session hop for like juice citrus hop forward. Okay. IPA. Um, it was absolutely delicious and I'm almost like want to run to my fridge and look at the name of it because I'm embarrassed. Um, but it was, it was really, really tasty and I loved it because it was 4% alcohol. So nice. it was like nice to like have one beer and, and feel very chill and like have it go with the, the, the cheese plate that I put together for dinner. Cause I, I'm a big fan of a cheese plate once a week for dinner. Nice. Um, cause it's super easy and, yes. and so that's been delicious. But besides that, not a lot, actually. Okay, but but we have to have I the know. cheese plate conversation then because you brought it up. What? Yeah. So, what's in your opinion the minimum number of cheeses to call it a cheese plate? And are there any like absolute? I have to have this on my cheese plate. So the minimum number. Uh, I'm not. I don't. I've never thought about this before. I'm going to go with three because that's what I usually have on the plate. Okay, I agree. Three is the bare minimum. Yes, I feel like, but I'm not, you know, I'm not about a grazing board as you see, like that's all the rage on Instagram, you know, where it's like, it's completely full. I like to have some space between the cheese. Um, <laughs> and then usually something super creamy and funky. Gotcha. Usually something hard-ish. So that can be for me like anything, like that can run the gamut. I mean, again, I go by basically my taste with Naomi's taste, right? So it's like we, we basically like all the same kinds of cheeses, but um either a Comte or maybe it's a cheddar or maybe it's a Gouda, but it's something, something somewhat hard. Okay. Um, and then uh, we move into the, like the blues. Okay. So my blue cheese thing, which was, oh, I know discovery. what you're going to say. I know what you're going to say. Is it butter on blue cheese? You, Cause you showed me it. I did. That's right. We were, I forgot. I have, I have already shared this with you, but for our listeners who aren't familiar, uh, I learned uh, in France that like a, a very traditional, like 
French bistro, like what you get with your cheese plate is you get blue cheese and some butter. And the, it made total sense to me when I tried it, because one of the things about blue cheese that can be really hard for people, the flavor maybe, but a lot of it is like, there's not a lot of like remaining fat in blue cheese, like the mold basically consumes a lot of that. And so you add a little butter to just add some richness back in and it makes a big difference. Um, I've converted several kind of blue skeptics uh, with that trick. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you on the cheese board. I think to me, the only thing that I, I would say that I, I have to kind of, I'm a big fan of is I, I need usually one non cow's milk cheese at a minimum, just for some sort of like flavor difference. I, I love a cheese plate though. And it's like, oh, a, it's just, it's a very easy dinner with like some really fresh bread or not yeah. even have to do that fresh bread. And it's a, uh, it's like a very delicious thing and it's, you know, it's no, no muss, no fuss. So yeah. Uh, yeah. I was a, I was a big fan of that, but let's get into today's discussion. Let's do it. So do you want to welcome our guest again, Zach? I will. It's apparently my role on uh, the podcast, uh, but we are super thrilled to be joined again by uh, Rania Zayat, who's the co-founder of Lyft Collective. And uh, we're here mostly to talk about the uh, just completed Lyft Collective virtual conference, which both you, uh, Adam and Rania, were participants in. Um, so Rania, thank you so much for your time. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure. So I want to ask just first of all, kind of broad picture, and then we'll get into some more granular stuff, like how'd it go? <laughs> Uh, You know, it went, I think, better than uh, any of our team could have expected uh, or imagined it to go. Um, So just really feeling, feeling all the feels uh, today and last night and, um, you know, just so inspired by, uh, by the engagement, by the attendance, by the speakers, the conversations, um, you know, throughout the, throughout the two days and and conversations that I, I know and I hope will continue um, to to happen within the community post post conference. Very cool. So um, obviously, I I was lucky enough to be able to attend some of the sessions. Um, I thought that the conference as a whole was amazing. It was incre- It was really cool to watch uh, the conference because you know this was obviously virtual, which it had never been before. But I thought what was really cool was you know seeing all of the you know, conversations happening in the chat. Um, that just for me made it even more powerful in a lot of ways, right? To see how like the speakers or panels sort of, you know, brought up to the four issues and then watching people react to those issues and sort of share their own experiences. That was really amazing because I know that obviously that often happens at conferences, right? Where there's a, there's a, a speaker and then people go out of the lecture hall and sort of have their side conversations. But to see that happening in real time, I think was pretty amazing. What have you heard? I mean, obviously, it's only been not even 24 hours since the close of the conference um, from from people who've attended. And, and sort of were there some conversations that were really memorable to you that people were having or reactions? Yeah, I mean, and and to your point about the conversations in the, in the chat, I mean, that to me was like one of the, the greatest parts of this event because we did not, in, you know, we never really had the intention or idea to do a virtual conference simply for the fact that we felt like it wouldn't be as engaging, but to the contrary, people being able to have those chats while these conversations were happening just would not have been possible in a, you know, in an in-person event because, you know, you're, everyone's silent and we're like listening to the message. Um, So to have that kind of going on and to just feel the energy that was happening through through the chat and the connections and watching people, you know, provide resources and and kind of dive a little bit deeper. That was so, so inspiring. Um, 
But yeah, I think that what I was so pleased with was that there were so many people there who just have not ever felt like they've had a voice or a safe space in our industry due to a lot of the issues that we were dis- that we were discussing throughout the conference. Um, and I really feel like people did finally feel like here is an event, here is a community um, where they felt seen and valued and respected um, and just safe in these conversations. And, you know, that's that's all that we, we really wanted to do with this event. So I'm so grateful that people spoke up about that. Excellent. And I know that that sense of being heard and, and seen is hugely important. But I'm also curious, and, and I know that there's going to be a longer answer here than, than we could possibly fit on the podcast, but as far as takeaways and actionable items kind of coming out of this, besides just creating space, but in, in creating action moving forward, are there a few uh, things that came out of either those uh, the panel discussions or even those side conversations that our listeners, that Adam and I, others can take forward and say, hey, you know, here are things that we can be doing in a concrete sense um, moving forward besides, or I should say, in addition to just, you know, making space and listening. Yeah, I was going to say that I think, you know, one of the biggest messages and biggest takeaways, and you kind of just use this word um, a few times is, is action, right? And I think that we have been in a place, especially in, you know, last year in 2020, where it was all about, okay, we're going to listen, we're going to learn, we're going to read, we're going to try and figure out how to to better understand and, and be better allies. Um, but now the conversation is shifting over to, well, it's not just, it's not enough just to be an ally, right? We have to be an accomplice. And that was something that came out of the decolonized wine panel with um, Yurka, Jade, and Etsy um, about, you know, what are we actually doing? When are we standing up? Um, you know, when we are witness to these, uh, when we're witness to to harm and abuse that's happening in real time in a, in a space that we're in, um, we can't we can't sit back and be silent anymore. We can't provide the excuse that we didn't have the verbiage or know what to say, um, and that if we actually want to show up and to continue to do this work, that we actually have to take action. We have to speak up. We have to say something. And that to me is is like the biggest takeaway of all of this. Is like yes, it's a learning opportunity. Um, but are we asking the right questions? Are we putting ourselves in, you know, quote unquote, uncomfortable situations? Are we getting comfortable with that discomfort? And how are we using each of us, the, pr- the unique privilege that we have, um, which is different for everybody, but how are we using that to stand up for people who don't necessarily have that same privilege and who experience trauma and harm um, on, an, on a daily basis? So I- I'm curious, you know, some of the sessions, I think there was, there was a mixed sort of um, take on how COVID has impacted, you know, uh, sort of people showing up and paying attention. I think, you know, some of the speakers on the panel I was on felt like COVID has made us all pay attention more because we've had more time. Um, and then in other, you know, reactions have been, on other panels I listened to were like, actually, you know, people have paid less attention because they've been more focused on just what's happening in their day-to-day life and surviving and things like that. But now that we seem to be coming out of COVID, um, you know, what do you think was the biggest sort of, or what do you think is the biggest thing people should be thinking about as they potentially are either going back to work in the industry we're all a part of, or going to take part in dining at restaurants where people in the industry work, you know, shopping in wine shops that are more in-person interactions are, you know, are coming back. Sort of what are some, some lessons and rules that we should be taking with us as we, we go to do, sorry, as we go to do that? 
Yeah, um, I that's a that's a big question. I think that's you know <clears throat> it's important that we understand what we don't understand, and um, being able to know that we don't necessarily have all the answers about how we can show up for people, but asking those questions, what do you need? Um, Dr. Hobie Wedler, one of our speakers this year, who is um, who is a blind wine professional. Um, he's mentioned this several times to me is like, we don't, uh, we don't always know um, how to cater to the needs of others, right? But we can't just make the assumptions of like, well, maybe if I do this, then that'll be helpful. We just have to say, hey, what do you need? How can I best support you? Um, and being able to just ed- educate ourselves through really intelligent questions um, is a great way to do that. And I know that the the conference obviously focuses on lots of different dimensions of the beverage alcohol industry. I'm wondering though, you know, we are in this period of time now as, um, as the COVID pandemic is not over, but, you know, places are starting to reopen more fully. People are getting vaccinated. And we're in this period where I think for a lot of um, people in the hospitality industry, they're either looking at potentially going back to work for the first time in a year, going back to work more fully. People who are employers are perhaps hiring. And and obviously the only the employment is not the only place where these issues are are, are important, but it's a huge area where it is um, you know a big point of impact where um, where being um, you know conscious of these issues is so important. And I'm wondering was there was there something to be said about this idea that we have this we've had this sort of industry wide pause reset you know, are there, are there ways to come out of this COVID related um, period and, and make substantive change in the hospitality industry specifically? Yeah, I definitely think, you know, um, this is such a great time because we've had such a pause, uh, a long pause. And we, I won't get into all of the issues with, you know, the hospitality industry and protecting workers. And there, I mean, that's, there's a whole um, set of issues that have needed to be addressed for a while with that. But this is such a great time to actually start implementing those changes slowly as we're starting to reopen and set new precedent for what those structures of um, positions look like, how we can better protect our employees, um, sort of the shifting dynamics of restaurant culture. And I think it's really important to um, to acknowledge that with this event, um, you know, we were we put on a code of conduct um, at the suggestion of um, Yurka Jure on our decolonized wine panel to say like that we have a zero tolerance policy for these types of um, violence and discrimination, and really setting the tone for creating safe space. And this is something that I've mentioned before, but. Zero tolerance policies are, are something that we as an industry have not fully adopted yet. And um, particularly at a restaurant, because you are engaging with so many different people and there can often be this sense of entitlement for guests to just kind of come in and either bringing their own problems into their dining experience and projecting those onto their servers or feeling like, you know, they should should get everything that they ask for, even if that's not what the restaurant typically provides. Um, And then being able to go out and maybe make public complaints or give a restaurant a low rating that can really affect the jobs and the the income and the livelihood of of restaurant employees. Um, I think it's really important that as a, a restaurant owners and managers that we are setting up systems to protect our employees and to say, you know, the customer is not always right. Um, 
we need to say, you know, if there is an issue with the guest, how are we showing up for our employees? And also something that Ashton touched on um, during her keynote was, you know, we can only dismantle what we can name, but we often only uh, name things that can be proven through like um, through physical proof, right? So if somebody has been uh, violently or physically harmed, um, you know, we can start to dismantle that because there's proof. But these other types of harm harms that occur that are uh, maybe more nuanced or more subtle, um, we often don't have the uh, either the understanding or um, the verbiage to really start to dissect those behaviors and be able to protect people and show up for them and dismantle those things too. And I think that that's such an important part of what we can start doing if, if, you know, you have an employee that comes up to you and say, this table made me, this guest made me feel really uncomfortable, or they did this thing, you know, how are we validating those concerns? How are we um, protecting the people that sh- are showing up and really making our restaurant be able to operate um, on a day-to-day basis? And that's hopefully something that I, I would really love to see the hospitality industry start to, to, to prioritize as we reopen. I mean, I think what you're saying is really important. I, I also wonder if it's as much about all of us. I mean, VinePair being important because we're, you know, a media platform educating the guest as well that, you know, this sort of culture of the customer's always right is no more, right? That this, like, if that's what you expect as being high quality service, you know, you're wrong, right? High quality service is meaning that you know, you're getting a great experience, obviously, but you're also being just as respectful to the people who are serving you as they're being to you. Because I feel like there's so much sort of media out there that reinforces that idea that as much as an industry talks about how we need to show up for the people working there, that's great. But if, if we're not also changing the behavior of the guests, then it's just going to be sort of this one-sided thing, right? Where we're going to continue to show up for the people and say, this isn't okay, but the guest still thinks, well, screw you. I'm not going to leave a tip. I'm not going to you know, support a fair wage and I'm going to go and leave a bad Yelp review. Was there any conversation about that, about how restaurants can better you know, explain to their guests what's expected of them? Like, is it you know, potentially notes on a menu? Is it sort of a, you know, I hate to say there should be a, a code of guidelines, but it was pretty amazing in you know, the early 2000s, the early aughts, if you will, when like the craft cocktail bars were putting out rules, right? And saying to the guests, like, this is, you will not approach another table. You will not speak at this level of volume. You will, you know, speak to the the bartender in a respectful manner, like to sort of, and at that point they were combating, you know, against the culture that they were sort of creating bars against, right? Which is the sort of the, the, the loud party bar culture, but like, maybe we should just do that moving forward for everyone. Like let, let guests know when you show up that this is what's expected of you. Do you, th- is that something that anyone chatted about and, and sort of what's your reaction to that? Yeah. Um, I don't, uh, you know, I don't recall that specific conversation coming up in the chat and it might have when I wasn't um, fully engaged, but I will say that, you know, I I think that that is such an important way to move forward because what happens is, especially like, so I live in Austin and um, there are a group of restaurants here that are part of an organization that are really working to create, um, you know, long-term change for restaurant culture and hospitality culture here through, you know, providing things like mental health services to their employees. And it often, you know, those, those sort of uh, early adopters of these policies are often the ones that can take the biggest financial hit because 
oftentimes they're standing alone. And if somebody doesn't like something or the way that they're being told this behavior is not okay, then it's easy for a guest to just say, okay, well, I'm not going to go back to that place, but I'm going to go somewhere else that can cater to the, the needs and the demands that I have. Um, and so I think that it's important that more and more and more of us are getting on this train and are supporting each other through that, because I think that it is going to take collective action um, for these changes to really start to, to resonate with, um, with guests and with diners um, across the country. And we can certainly start small. You know, there are obviously a lot of um, restaurant groups that have, you know, removed that, you know, are starting to remove tipping culture. Um, and we've seen that in, you know, obviously in, in New York, but there are restaurants here in, um, here in Austin and I'm sure many other cities. Um, but it's about, you know, providing fair wages. It's about providing mental health services. It's about um, actually naming the actions uh, that are not, that we don't want to accept and to, that we don't want our workers to be subjected to. And so I think it, it's really important that um, even if that we start small, even if it's some small thing that we put on our menu saying that we don't about, you know, we don't accept this type of treatment or behavior words that um, we're still starting somewhere. Right. And the best time to do that is to start today. And, you know, Ronnie, you mentioned a, a piece of it and Adam, you did too, that I think is really important. And and I know you mentioned there wasn't maybe a ton of conversation specifically about this idea of, you know, codes of conduct or, or ways to sort of inform guests of what is and isn't allowed. But you mentioned, Ronnie, the central importance of, of tipping and tip culture to this kind of toxic potential environment where because front of house workers in most places are their wages are so tied to tips and tips are at the discretion of the customer and the customer or lots of customers have expectations that they will be indulged in a variety of ways, many of which are, as it turns out, you know, harmful to the service staff. I know when we spoke beforehand um, that one of the things that, that having the virtual conference allowed was for uh, more uh, international participation. And obviously there are lots of other countries that have strong restaurant cultures without tipping or much tipping. Is that, is that something that's been discussed or, or is, does, does getting rid of tipping or, or greatly minimizing its importance disarm some of that power imbalance that, that we find in restaurants and bars? Yeah. I, I mean, I definitely think that that is exactly what it comes down to is this power imbalance and who has the power and who, who, who feels like they can dictate what someone gets to take home at the end of the day or at the end of the week, simply because something didn't, wasn't uh, in line with maybe their expectations. And I don't necessarily think that it's fully possible to remove tipping in general, because unfortunately the structure of restaurant and hospitality industry, I don't think that we're prepared to just say, to put that burden of, uh, you know, restaurants being able to fully compensate all of their staff, because unfortunately it really is a structural issue with restaurants in general and like pricing of food. And unfortunately, if we were to, you know, to, to build that price into say the food, for instance, so that there is maybe more distribution of wages being split between back and front of the house that, you know, people would find restaurants to be too expensive. Right. And then that would ultimately lead to, um, I don't know, maybe to the demise of restaurants in general, but I think that there are way, uh, ways around that where you can, um, you know, have automatic gratuity added onto the check as a line item or something. There, I've seen in the Bay Area that there is 
a 3% charge um, on the tab for uh, that, that supports healthcare for restaurant workers. And so it's those types of things that if we just get used to seeing them and knowing that that is going to be on the bill when we go eat out, that is going to really help people understand that, you know, this is something that is expected. If you feel like you can afford to go out to eat at a restaurant, that 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 means that you can afford to pay 20% gratuity to the staff. Uh, so one of the things that Ashton talked about uh, towards the end of her talk was, you know, looking to other industries uh, for sort of examples and what they've done. Um, you know, what for people who who didn't hear what she had to say, sort of what industries should we be looking to to say, okay, well, you know, obviously no one's doing it perfectly, but here's some things that they've done, and here's ways that we can sort of, uh, you know, borrow what what they've done and, and make it better in the wine industry. I know that she was specifically talking about the bar industry compared to the wine industry, and then also a little bit like the bar industry looking towards the coffee industry. Um, but you know, are there other are there other places for us to point to and say like this is something that works and we need to adopt it in in the world of wine and then the world of sort of hospitality as a whole? Certainly, yeah. She and she did um, she did mention specifically the cocktail industry and coffee. And while those are definitely two industries that I'm unfamiliar with, I think that as consumers of those products um, and even the chocolate industry, I'll throw that out there as well. You know, we. I, I don't know about anybody else, but like when I'm going out and buying coffee or chocolate, um, I often look for things like fair trade certified or um, these these really transparent organizations and initiatives that I know um, mean that my when I'm buying this bar of chocolate or whatever it is that that the workers that um, the people that are actually harvesting these products um, are hopefully being fairly compensated, um, are not in uh, abusive um, or exploitive environments, right? That they are, um, that they are being treated humanely. Um, And that is something that, you know, there's been a lot of conversation in recent years um, and sort of brewing under the surface of, um, you know, exploitation of migrant laborers and vineyard workers um, and the unsustainability of, you know, harvest in general. And, a shortage of laborers. And I think that there are a lot of people trying to do good things that are starting small, but being able to look at the models that those industries have already, that have they've had in place for many years, um, building upon that, I would certainly love to see more collaboration um, on how we can actually make those changes um, a little bit faster and a little bit more um, impactful from the beginning rather than starting off super small. Do you think that part of the issue with wine in particular is that when it's come to sort of this idea of morally or ethically oriented purchasing, people are more fixated on organic, uh, you know, sort of agricultural practices and may not be as attuned to the idea that these are also products that do require a lot of labor? You know, I think there's sometimes a misconception in general in wine that you know, the wine kind of just, you know, I mean, sometimes played into by winemakers in one way or another, that wine kind of makes itself that it doesn't really get talked about as, as an agricultural product in the way that none of us would think that about, you know, chocolate or coffee or whatever. Is is that maybe part of the issue here? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we, this is a storytelling industry, right? And so there's so much power in how we tell these stories. And so often we're starting the story with kind of halfway through the process. We start it with harvest. We start it with- right the winemaking process and the winemaker and what's happening in the winery and completely leave out all of the work that happens throughout the year 
to sustain this vine and to grow these grapes. And, um, you know, the, even after the wine is made, um, the distribution of that wine and how, how we're shipping these things, who's doing that work. Um, so we're leaving out so many fundamental parts of the story. And so as we begin to shift that narrative, and take those conversations into the dining room when we're selling wine to guests or even you putting them out there on our e-commerce platforms. Um, the, there's so much power in, in just shifting the way that we talk about the, the, the whole, uh, yeah, the, the whole product. That makes a lot of sense. So um, obviously there were so many conversations and, uh, you know, presentations that happened during the conference. Were there any others uh, for you that really stood out that, you know, um, people who were not able to attend should be aware of? Yeah. I mean, I, there's, there's so many great things to take away. I think um, some of my key highlights, aside from what I mentioned earlier about taking, taking action is, uh, you know, we, during our shifting women in wine culture panel, um, moderated by Elaine Shukan Brown, we talked about this idea of womanism and giving credit to those who actually started these movements, right? When we look back at, um, the suffragist movement, um, that was actually started in the 1800s by black women, um, who unfortunately did not get the right to vote until, you know, the 1960s. And then even from, from there, when um, gay rights started in the 60s and 70s, um, that was actually a movement that was started by Black trans, the Black trans community. Um, but the trans community is still so far behind in receiving the, the rights and, and dignity and humanity that they deserve, um, but have carried so much of the burden of, of starting these movements, but unfortunately not benefiting from their labor. Um, so I, I think that that was a really important topic, um, you know, shifting over to the entrepreneurship panel and making space for self-made moderated by Regine Rousseau, understanding that um, there are obviously a lot of barriers to entry for getting funding and um, understanding how to create a business plan and how to market and how to use social media to your advantage as a business owner. But once you can figure those things out, utilizing some of the resources that were provided, um, the, the power that comes out of being a business owner, being able to advocate for yourself, but also advocate for others because you get to start something new. You get to build something from the ground up. And so you really have full control of saying, this is what I'm going to adhere to as a business owner. And this is what I'm not going to adhere to. And being able to create those changes business by business um, is really important. Brandy, I have a, one last question for you, which is um, just for people who either were not able to attend or were able to attend some of the sessions, are there ways to uh, get, you know, to view the recordings, to, to engage with the uh, content, even if they couldn't be there, uh, you know, live in real time? Yeah, we, um, I'm so grateful that we were able to record all of the panels. Um, so we will be, uh, those will be available certainly to everyone that registered for the conference um, through, uh, through access to those videos. But we also compiled, uh, thankfully, somebody on our team brilliantly uh, collected all of the links that were shared uh, throughout the chat that day about other resources and, and cool initiatives. So we'll be sharing and distributing that information. Um, and then we will most likely have uh, the conference panels available for viewing um, to people that weren't able to register this time um, to, view, to view a little bit later down the road. Um, but I do want to give, uh, I do want to throw out one more thing. And this is something that, you know, as we were talking about entrepreneurship and, 
even how money is power and being more comfortable with conversations about money that, you know, I, I was so proud that, you know, we didn't, we were not able to do this in our first year, but we were able to actually pay all of our speakers and our moderators this year uh, for the conference. And I think that that's a really important thing to mention because as a nonprofit, um, it is often very hard to gain you know, the funds needed to be able to host an event like this that really greatly impacts the community. And um, everyone that participated in this conference put in so much time, so much labor, so much preparation to really bring these conversations to life. Um, and I'm just really grateful that and, and hopeful that we can continue to do that and recognizing that um, hopefully that other organizations uh, we'll be able to to recognize the importance of actually paying people for this work because even though it is for a good cause, um, it's something so many of us do every single day, and it is it is work um, and it is time and it's emotional labor and a lot of energy that goes into it. Um, yeah, so there are so many moving parts behind the scenes of running a nonprofit and a platform and tool that's been really helpful to us is Milio because we've been able to automate scheduling and receiving all of our payments through our sponsors and, and speakers that we're paying uh, without actually having to write and mail physical checks. Yeah, just something I want to to shout out for them. So thank you, Melio, for kind of simplifying that process. So you actually led me up to uh, my final question, which is, you know, what obviously, you know, I'm sure you're already thinking about the conference for next year, but what else is on the horizon for Lyft Collective? What are your plans in the next year uh, and how can people support you? Thank you. Yeah. Um, we, you know, there's, there's a lot that we want to do. Um, I think that, you know, one of the things just based on the conference is we would really like to formulate some sort of um, ongoing I can't think of the word that I want to say right now, but some sort of tool or resource on our website where people can continue to share uh, resources if that's, you know, related to mental health uh, for industry workers, if that's for, you know, um, ways to get funding for starting your own business, Mm -hmm. um, just, you know, mental health support, all those things. We want to be able to build something like that on our website. We also want to have these conversations more than once a year. Um, So, trying to work out some sort of way that we can continue to host webinars or host these conversations because, you know, I, I think a lot of the topics that we covered could really take up so much more time than we were able to, to give within that platform. Mm-hmm. Um, so just being able to really dive deeper into, into these topics and understand them better and um, continue to educate industry, industry workers and consumers um, about the issues that we're facing and, and the adaptability of, of um, how we can actually take action. And you got to answer for me again, how do they support you? And yes, um, we are, we are a 501c3 nonprofit. Um, So we do accept uh, donations, which is um, very, very helpful for us to continue to do these types of programs. So through our website, they can go onto liftcollective.org, hit donate. Um, They can also uh, support some of the other inspiring initiatives that we have listed on our website. Um, follow us, engage in the conversations that we're having, um, you know, purchase tickets to uh, the conference in the future um, or any other um, programs that we are, that we're hosting. Amazing. Rania, thank you so much for your time, for everything that you do for this industry, for the creation of Lyft Collective and to all of your 
partners, um, associates, everyone that helped put this conference on and helps this organization exist. We really, really appreciate it. Um, And yeah, just please keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. And thank you so much for hosting me and also for being a big supporter of, of our organization. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tastings Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.